Welcome to Dragon Talk, everyone! Yeah! Very exciting for this, the official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Yeah! I am Greg Tito. I'm Shelly Mazanoble. Oh, you're not going to continue my, no, my, my singing? I'm not, because uh, yesterday I was criticized for my singing. Who? Uh, what? Uh, by my child. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Is it, though? He doesn't have a very good uh, ear. I So I have to wake him up in the morning, and I am trying to make that a more pleasant experience because mm-hmm. nobody likes to be woken up. And I also don't like to just be screamed at by an eight-year-old in my morning. So I said, I always say, how do you want me to wake you up in the morning? Like, should I start with a story? Should I do a poem? Want me to? And he goes, I don't care, but I do not like your singing. Wow. So. You know what you should do? Sing to him every morning. Wind spoon in a pot. (laughs) Cowbell. Just go go old school. (laughs) Just be like, oh, you said not singing. I am not singing right now. Do you like this better? <laughs> yeah. Just get like a bucket of water, dump it on. Dump it on them. Yeah, there's work too. There's other things I could do without yeah. singing. Yeah, you're right. right. You're right. Well, you can just drop puppy on them. Maybe that'll work. That happens usually. Usually, puppy follows me in the room to oh, to wake him do up. Doesn't That's matter. The best. Yeah. Would rather have a big smelly fat dog uh, climbing on him than his mother gently singing to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you were doing it like as a, a D&D character, perhaps he would mm-hmm. like that better. If you were like singing as a as a hag or perhaps a, uh, <laughs> a harpy, a harpy or a siren, a siren. or uh, one of the magical characters from Encanto, perhaps. One may argue that, I mean, I kind of am singing as a hag <laughs> anytime. <laughs> Which I take as a compliment, as you know. I don't know any hags that look like they're 25, Shelly. Come on. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Hashtag no filter. No filter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, we have a very exciting guest for this episode of Dragon Talk. Yeah. Matthew Mercer returns. There are quite a few things going on in the Critical Role world. They've recently started the third campaign. They are uh, climbing up the charts for the Amazon uh, show out there, The Legend of Vox Machina. When we were talking to him, in fact, this had not yet aired. And so you could kind of, it's kind of adorable to see the uh, trepidation that he shows about the uh, reception. But so far, it seems like people just, uh, you know, all the critters out there are really just lapping up everything about this animated series. So you can check that out uh, on Amazon Prime. And we get to hear Matt talk a little bit about making that and what it was like. Um, and then, of course, we've got Critical Role, Call of the Nether Deep on the horizon, coming out on March 15th. d oh, book yeah. for the ages with tons of secrets around uh, uh, Campaign 3 and things, you know, I don't know. Some stuff out there. Lots of lore that uh, you uh, critters are going to be really excited about. But also, you know, if you're not as familiar with the world, um, just a lot of cool story hooks and things that you can drop into all of your D&D campaigns. It's very cool. Very cool stuff all around. Uh, So stick around for that interview. Uh, But before we get to it, we have a very special (laughs) guest Coming on our How to DM segment, right, Shelly? It 
I have been trying to book this guest for years, trying to get this wonderful dungeon master. Actually, uh, somebody I am lucky enough to have been dungeon mastered. Two, bye. Anyway, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> I've gotten some great advice from this person, and I'm so excited that he has agreed to be my guest for how to be a DM. I can't wait. Welcome to How to DM. I have such a special guest. Somebody uh, brand new to this Dragon Talk listening audience. <laughs> Somebody you won't recognize at all. Just kidding. It's Greg Tito. Hi, Charlie. Hi, thanks. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, I'm here. I want to. So, I feel like I've been giving you so much information this whole time, and now I can't wait to do it in this segment form. Like officially now. Mm-hmm. Now it'll stick in my brain because you're doing it here. Um, I but I have actually used your DMing advice in my my two DM my two games that I DM'd. I have used I have I have taken your advice and I have said it to other people. So you are inspiring me already. One of the things that I loved about playing with you is when we were playing with with brand new people and the way that you brought them into the action and. and introduce them to role-playing by asking them, well, what does it look like when you do that? Like, that is such a cool way of having them kind of feel what it's like to be their character and take away some of the scariness about role-playing. Oh, yeah. Remember that? I do. I do remember that. Yeah. I like those type of things because it does, you're right, it just kind of illustrates what what this game is for new people kind of right away, right, where you can... uh, you know, have that shared pretend moment when when you're using words to describe what happens. It's so much more evocative when you use it in game terms rather than just say like, "My character shoots a fireball." But you're right. like, "But what does that look like?" And you're like, "Oh, well, I don't know. I didn't even think about it." And then that just allows the the shared storytelling to flow. It does, and I used that with the the two girls that I was DMing for, and I actually thought that they weren't going to know what to do or like they because they're very shy and reserved and maybe they're not going to want to like stand up and show me what it looks like when they cast a ray of frost oh no they did they that one one just jumped right up and she was like it's like the hiss and she had sound effects and she had everything so like that's a really cool tactic but i hear sometimes people reference something called the rule of cool and in my mind i thought well who's cooler than greg tito so i mean Maybe you can explain this to me. What what exactly is the rule of cool? Well, I think there's different definitions for what it is out there, but in general, and this works for new players a lot too, is you know, there's a whole combat system that, you know, the player's handbook has pages and pages and pages on how those all things work. New players haven't digested that material yet. They might have read it, but they haven't really had like the big you know, uh, restrictions of what is out there. And especially for new players, you want to be able to be like, this game can do anything. Yeah. And so when someone says, you know, when, 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 a new D, when a DM asks a new player, like, what do you, what do you want to do? It's, you know, you want to use that yes and uh, type of, of communication. And so you don't want to necessarily shut down a new player who's their first thing that they might say at the table is perhaps not allowed by those rules that I just yeah. re- referenced, right? But you don't want to be like, well, no, actually, you can't do that because 
you know, once you get a more mature player, you can start to have those type of conversations. But I think it's much more effective to empower the new players to be like, okay, you do that, but you're going to have to roll this, and then you kind of on the fly come up with a modifier or you know a way to explain to them, okay, well, you're going to roll this d20, and again, new players may not be as familiar with the dice, and you're going to add, let's say, a 6 to it. And if you get above a 15, we'll say that you do it whatever that is, you know? And again, it may not by the letter of how the combat rules are written in the D&D manuals, that may not necessarily be possible, but it's just a nice way to show like, all right, what you're doing sounds really awesome and I want your character to be able to do it. There's an element of chance. Here, I'm going to explain to you exactly what the element of chance is so that when you, you know, perhaps don't get that role, you know why. And then you, you know, might actually have a lower DC than you would normally with a more experienced player. Uh, DC meaning, you know, the number that they need to hit once they add that modifier so that they kind of feel cool for the first experience they have at the table. And it gives them a little bit of like, oh, that's what this game is. And we've talked about this tons of times where you get that aha moment from a player. It's so important for their further enjoyment of the game. And again, you can, once they get more familiar with the rules and how it works, you can be a little bit more restrictive. But for me, the rule of cool is really just being like, well... We can try, you know, and sometimes it's things like the, the, the rules may not necessarily cover, too. Like, um, I want to swing on this chandelier and, uh, you know, jump off this balcony, swing on the chandelier and kick the bad guy in the, in the face. And you're like, all right, well, I, you know, let's figure out how all those rules work. Or you could just be like, eh, roll. Let's see if you do it. Oh, you did. And it looks like this. And you just try to describe it in a way that's evocative and might feel like in uh, you know a, another piece of, of of literature or movie or something like that might might make them feel, and then they've kind of got that idea of what D and D is. And to me, that's that's the summary of what rule of cool means to me. Oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> Do you? But like, you could use it anytime. Uh, it's your choice as a DM to use it or not use it. But you, you're mentioning with first time players and kind of giving them that taste of what it feels like to be heroic. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you should do that. You could do it with it. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think I like to roll in a very improvisational way as a dungeon master anyway. So it kind of just plays to the strengths of just making it up. And as long as everyone is aware of what, you know, the potential chances for success and failure is, then it's, that, I mean, that that's what the storytelling framework of D&D allows, right? That you can just be like, all right, well, that's this is what happens. And you don't necessarily, and this is why I tell you know DMs and players, you don't need to memorize the rules. You don't need to have them, you know, completely digested and 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 part of you. You can just come up with stuff like this and abdicate most scenarios that a player might come up with. And I think rewarding creative storytelling, storytelling or combat like that. Definitely, and I think it's important for a dungeon master to to know that this isn't a test. For them, like, I'm going to come up with the craziest thing to do on my turn, and you have to figure out all the math and see if I did it. And then you're going to use the wrong thing here and there, and I'm going to call you on it. It's not a test. So I think, like, we have to be able to give Dungeon Masters that permission to just, like you said, just make it up. Mm -hmm. It's up to you to figure that out. The person wants to do this thing, then you have the freedom to figure out the success or the failure. But I yeah. think that's really hard for dungeon masters. New ones. New ones, right? Because the the idea of this is the way a game works is kind of ingrained in how we learn, you know, how to play board games or board video games. And so like that's 
that freeing moment is kind of what Rule of Cool is all about. Is like being like, all right, this game and this framework can really support any any creativity that you come up with. And uh, I'd like to just make sure that people are aware of that, you know, as a baseline when they're new players. But then also, I play with veteran players who are like, oh my god, my DM would never let me do something like this. Thank you so much for allowing me, you know, to be able to do it. And I'm like, well, I mean. Not to, not to say you got a shitty dungeon master, but you kind of had a crappy dungeon master that wouldn't let you do these fun things. Like, you know, that's what this game is all about. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about that, too. Like, what types of things, because I, I, I hear that. Like, oh, my dungeon master doesn't let me do that, or my dungeon master wouldn't let me do that. Like, what what kinds of things wouldn't your dungeon master let you do? Or what kinds of things should it, should you not let your players do? <laughs> Well, I mean, that's where it, it becomes more of a of a tactical game further on once we get more of a familiarity with the rules and how monsters work and how that all happens. I think when a lot of people say that, they're talking specifically about character creation, right? Because you can, as we all know, you can build a character in such a way that some of the attacks monsters might have uh, would be nullified by some corner case rules that you've put together of your character to to kind of you know and if you if you go too far with what i'm talking about with the rule of cool the game can become unfun right okay you know so that that's that's why i think a lot of people say you know it's it's that um it's that joke from community where like well i'm a dungeon master where i create a world that's boundless by rules and then i create rules to to, to restrict them (laughs) it's a balance right and so that's why i say new players i think it's it's better to to go in the other balance of of allowing creativity and fun but once you have people who are more uh familiar with the system they can take advantage of that and then it becomes the 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 stuff that you're doing becomes a little bit more meaningless because you're 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 still in that um uh you know, rule of cool way of thinking. That said, if people are going to have fun with with the result of what you just, you know, whatever scenario you just made up on the fly, what's wrong with that? I, I don't necessarily see there's anything wrong with that. The, the hard part is when Dungeon Masters are trying to create challenges that feel right on that edge of my players are able to do this, but it still feels like they were, you know, really close to failure. And that's that balance that gets harder and harder as characters get leveled up and, and player skill gets leveled up. So I think when most people are saying my dungeon master wouldn't let me do it, it's usually yeah. when, we're, when we're much more dealing with more expert players. Okay, that makes sense. And then, so you, you kind of touched on this, and I wanted to ask, is there, is there a danger to doing, to employing the rule of cool that like your game's going to go off the rails or then people, players are just going to try to one up each other with the craziness and how do you how do you rein it in how do you make it seem like yes i am open to your wily ways players but also don't test me well i think the the it's all inherent in the system itself like even when i'm talking about the scenario of 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 swinging on that chandelier right and yeah. you say like okay this this die roll is going to determine whether or not you can do this or not. It's not me. It's not the dungeon master who's determining. Right. It's whether or not you know the 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 role that we've established works or not. Um, so I think a way to rein that in potentially would be to just make that 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 difficulty check that DC oh, higher, yeah. and so they they realize like, mm, well, I mean, I got a one in twenty chance of this working. Is that worth it? And then have some consequences so that if it does if it fails, uh, then <gasps> it actually you know does do that. So. Oh, that's a good Don't pull idea. punches, right? So if they fail, don't just be like, oh, you get to try again. You know, and because then that then the the 
uh, construct of this whole game kind of falls apart if you just are there's no consequences. So if mm-hmm. they fail, make sure the failure hurts, and then the the player will have to decide: Do I want to you know chance that again? More often than not, players really actually enjoy knowing what the stakes are and seeing the die roll. You know, and I know some some dungeon masters do all their rolls behind uh, the screen. Some do all of them in public. I like to mix and match. I like to do some behind a, a, a screen, but if it's a moment like this where it's a big rule of cool type of thing yeah. and the dungeon master is the one rolling, I'll often roll in full view of all the players at the table because it creates that tension moment where everyone's paying attention, everyone's looking at the die. Sometimes you can even build it up and roll it a little bit you know, in your hands and be like, okay, this is really stressful. What's going to happen here? And I've had, I've had players like stand up from the table and just be like, oh my gosh, what is going to happen here? What? I don't know. And so sometimes the rule of cool can create those moments, and that only happens when there is real consequences. So my advice there would be just not to not to pull punches. One, you know, the rule of cool uh, uh, sub, you know, whatever they're trying to do doesn't doesn't work. Yeah, I because I heard you say that you would tell them what the DC is and what they have to to be, and and it it made me think, oh, you're just giving up that information. But I I can see the difference. In that if it's like just part of the story that you're telling and you're already, if you're one of the monsters that they're encountering, then yeah, like I could see why that would be behind a screen if if you so prefer to do it that way. But I could see why a moment like this is something that the player's choosing to do and you're just the arbitrator of, yes, I must. So yeah. I, yeah, have, and it would raise the stakes to have that being done publicly. I always do wonder should I show the players my dice rolls or shouldn't? But it really is just a matter of preference, right? To, to me, it always, it, it, I think of the drama of it. Will this be more dramatic if I roll it in public? Yeah. Then do it that way. If if you're rolling dice, and, and the, the, it's true. I don't fudge dice very often, but when I do, it is usually because a fight is winding down or or something is is just not fun and we want to kind of get to the next thing so I'll just be like oh okay well they missed and so you get to roll your attack all right, all right combat's over and we can get to the next yeah uh, kind of stick but you know but again the rule of cool is not only about combat it really works well when you know in, in diplomatic uh, things and other stuff like it, you know allowing the creativity is is a big part of it and it's in all facets from ex- exploration to diplomacy to, to combat as well yeah that's true I never really thought about the dice rolls as a way to like raise the drama. So that's kind of cool too. Yeah. Uh, um, can you think of any moments either for you as a player or you as a dungeon master where like y- you saw or you did something really cool and succeeded at it? Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, this was back in the, in the fourth edition uh, era. Uh, my um, dungeon master created a, um, a sphere. It was back when, you know, fourth edition was much more about positioning and where your miniatures oh, were. Yeah. And yep. obviously that was all, almost always played on a, uh, a 2D surface. But he got a, a soccer ball and spray painted it and used the hexes on a soccer ball as like this sphere that we were playing on. Oh my god! Uh, and it was—it just opened up my mind. I was like, "This is so cool and interesting." But in one, and this was when I was a player. I was like, "Okay, I want because you know gravity would work a little bit different." I was thinking, so I was like, "Maybe I don't, I'm not really an acrobatic character, but I want to flip around 
and get uh, a completely different position from where I am. Um, I didn't, I didn't have any powers that let me do that. I didn't have anything that let me do it. And he just, he was like, okay, well, because of the weird, you know, nature of, of, of what we're playing with right now, I'll let you attempt to try to do this, uh, and, you know, roll an acrobatics check. The DC is going to be like 22 or something crazy like that. And I was like, and it was, you know, it was the end of a session. I think this was at a convention. Um, so it was kind of the end of the session where we're trying to, you know, get the, and everybody again was, we were about to kill the big bad and I needed to be able to get in the right position to do this. Uh, and he just said, okay, yeah, roll the dice, see what happens. And we had everybody, and this is another one of those moments where everybody kind of like just stood up and was like, what is going to happen with this roll? And I think I rolled like a 19 uh, uh, on the die. Oh, my God. Like, oh, my God, I did it. And then, yeah, so then we got to actually then show them, because we had, were using the miniatures, we got to show them doing like the, the acrobatic move and then getting in the right position to, oh. uh, to be able to um, land the killing blow, which was awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and stuff like that. I mean, we didn't talk about Rule of Cool back then, but I just loved that my that Dungeon Master was just able to roll with my, you know, with my crazy idea and see how, literally roll, see what happens. Yeah. I think that's the kind of Dungeon Master I strive to be. And I have to be less afraid of not, like, I'm, I, I I want to embrace those moments and be less afraid of, like, but I, I won't know how to figure out the rule to see if... And I think what I'm hearing is just pick, just make something. Pick something that makes sense. Yeah. Either just a number or whatever. Some other kind of, I don't know. I don't even right. know the right word. Just, well, and, just and do the number. It's easy. If it sounds far-fetched to you, if you're like, that doesn't, I don't know if that's going to work, then that's when you're like, make the DC higher, right? And mm-hmm. you're like, all right, well, I don't understand how that you, you think that's going to help, but if you want to do this, Try it. And, and, and that is, you know, the kind of essence of the rule of cool for me. And I guess you could also think about if that, if that player is skilled in something, like if they are skilled, uh, if they're trained in, in acrobatics and they're doing something like what you were describing, then that, you would factor that also into the, dis, the difficulty check, perhaps? I might not factor that into the difficulty check because that is... That that if they are skilled in it, it means they would have a um, oh, because they're going to add because they're going to be better bonus. at it anyway. That's right, okay. right. Um, it's when they're not skilled at it. It's usually when I'm like, I don't, are you sure you want to do this? Because you have a plus two in acrobatics, so you really need to get a really high roll, you know. And the chances of that are are off. Um, but if they come up with a really great way to describe it or how they're using. Uh, you know, sometimes other players will get swept up in this, and they'll be like, "Oh, I'm going to help. I'm going to give them a boost." And then, oh. in that situation, I will, I will, uh, in, in 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 this era, allow them to roll with advantage. Nice. And that just kind of helps out, you know. Oh, they, it makes everybody feel like they're doing a teamwork thing. You don't necessarily have to mess with the math too much. You can just be like, all right, well, it's a high DC, but you got you know two chances to try and get it. I like it. It makes sense. Similarly, disadvantage really can help in that situation too, where you're just like, oh man, you're really going to try to, you know, insult the, the the elven queen to get what you want. I don't think that's going to really work. So, you know, disadvantage. But it might be a dramatic moment anyway, and right. uh, and still be tons of fun for everybody and, to to kind of see it. And I like the addition of consequences too. You're going to try to do this, but just know failure is not just you walking away. <laughs> it's true. And that's how you can, t- and, and, and that consequence can be anything. It can obviously be, you know, physical damage to your, to your character. It could be uh, a way to get rid of magic items that you might have given too much to a character, right? If you're like, oh, I'm going to jump over this chasm. Well, you make it, but you dropped that 
plus five sword I probably shouldn't have given to you three sessions ago. Oh, So you can solve no a lot of other problems that way, too. Okay, well, note to all of you players out there, if you're <laughs> going to try to jump, hand that weapon to someone else for safekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> That's smart. really good. That's very smart. I like it. All right. Well, you know what? I feel cooler. Well, you are cooler. There are rules to being cool. <laughs> we learned them all. We learned them all. Thanks, Greg Tito. I think that is a very useful information and um, kind of makes me want to DM a third game. <gasps> we should do it. We should do it for Quinn. Do it for Quinn. Awesome. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Shelly, for asking me to be a big part of this. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I learned so much by listening to that segment. I mean, if anybody can talk about the rule of cool, it's you, Greg Tito. Oh, I am. As, as I start every single self-evaluation, I suck. Don't listen to anything <laughs> I have to say. I'm an idiot. Uh, I am but just I appreciate. a developmental opportunity. That's <laughs> all I am. <laughs> <laughs> I am one big developmental opportunity. <laughs> I am a teachable moment. (laughs) (laughs) Why do I have to sound like like Eeyore over here? That's 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 the imposter Greg. That's That's my imposter Greg. Hi, I'm Greg. Well, uh, imposter Greg is very excited to be able to talk to Matt again. It's been a long time. uh, So uh, let's, let's catch up with what's going on in the world of Exandria. Yes. Let's welcome Matt Mercer to Dragon Talk. Yay! Yay! Thank you for what? having me. Happy to be back. <laughs> so oh, exciting. I know. It's so good to see you. So good to hear good you. To see, good we're to back. see you guys too. It's been far too long. It, it has. has. Yeah. We had we we we're, we're uh spanning from the last time we talked basically, you know, uh, a an entire campaign of destruction in our world. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, a, a weird homebrew that, you know, I didn't, I'm not going to buy part two if there is a part two. I'm not a Yeah, deal. yeah, there's, there's, there's <laughs> so, some media out there that's too dark. Uh, and I think the the real world media is a bit dark for my taste. I'll yeah. just stick to my fantasy realms and for now. It's just not even that believable. I mean, really? I mean, <laughs> murder, murder hornets. By the way, what happened to the murder hornets? I think even they got a little too depressed and had to take a break. <laughs> They're like, come on. They just turned just, around and they were like, whoa. They were like, we've been working on this like branding for years, and they get overshadowed in a month. They're just like, never mind. (laughs) Their spokesperson had long COVID and and couldn't really do anything with it. I know, seriously. Whatever. We're here now, and we are happy to have you here. And I mean, there's like a few newsy things happening with you these days. Just a few. Just a handful. You're you're starting off all sorts of interesting already. (laughs) I don't even know where to begin with you, except, I mean, I'm kind of excited about a book that's coming out in March. Call of the Netherdeep. Indeed. What have you done here? What have you done? (laughs) What have I done? Uh, I, I'm excited because this is this is really the first opportunity that we've had to do an actual adventure module. You know, the the previous anything that we've written, I've written, let alone you know, with with wonderful folks at, at Wizards and and other creative teams, has all been kind of more in the realm of 
campaign guides and kind of introducing people to the world of Exandria. But now that we've kind of had a few opportunities to do that, this is the first chance to really kind of craft a narrative story to give to DMs to be like, all right, now you here's some ways and a, a fun narrative thread that you can just take and run with it and make it your own and you know, pull your players through all of its its ups and downs and challenges. And yeah, I'm super excited. It's cool because it allows, I mean, because a lot of people who fell into Dungeons and Dragons through watching Critical Role uh, have wanted to get, get a taste of that, right? Of what they saw with, with, with all of you playing together. Um, but that's hard to do, right? You can't just be like, mm-hmm. oh, you're going to interact with these main characters or, or things like that. And so I, what I love about this book is it feels like it's, it's kind of like in parallel to the stories that you're telling on the show. And they can feel like they have meaningful, you know, uh, the players who, who pick up and, and play this adventure can feel like they have a meaningful like uh, uh, interaction with the world, but without having to worry about, you know, you know, them killing a main character or something like that. Exactly. Which well, it still happens. It's D and D. Well, yeah, you never know. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, like it's true. Um, but yeah, the, the the initial intent setting out with this was to one to provide a story that took place in a world where people were you know very familiar with Exandria, especially with Wild Mountain, the Explorer's Guide to Wild Mountain that we put out a short time ago. Um, to to offer a story in a place that felt very familiar but also very unique compared to a lot of other published modules that existed in like the Forgotten Realms and Aberon and other you know, places that kind of felt wholly Exandrian tethered. Um, and so finding points to the narrative that felt unique to that comparison to other places so it fit comfortably within the plethora of stories that D&D had already published and still kind of stand on its own. Um, and then on top of that, just kind of filling it with NPCs and story bits and a lot of uh, sidebars and informative ways that we can help give tools to a DM, no matter if they're fresh to the DM seat or they've been doing it a long time, to possibly even elevate the narrative uh, a little more and really kind of give them more tools to play with and to engage the players. So that was very much kind of the the impetus for this this story, and as well as explore some aspects of the history and lore of Exandria that we haven't had a chance to in other media yet. So it's been a really fun challenge. Yeah, so there's lots for fans of Critical Role to discover in this book, mm-hmm. which I think oh, yeah. is super exciting. But then it's like, I mean, I don't know, like the one or two people out there that haven't seen Critical Role. Um, it's more than that. <laughs> they, there's, this is still an amazing adventure that is helmed by some, I'm hot take here. I'd say some of the greatest creative minds in the, in the industry. So uh, why wouldn't you want an adventure like that? I wouldn't disagree. The writing team that brought this to life is impeccably talented. Uh, James Haig helped me uh, and tremendously led the charge on a lot of the book's development. And, you know, the, the vision of the story that I had crafted is, you know, we've kind of worked in tandem, but he really kind of ran the gamut on, on seeing it through. Uh, and he's amazing. Then our amazing writing team, uh, Latia Jaquiz is incredible. Cassandra Koss, Sadie Lowry, and then Mackenzie to Armis. Each one of them brought... Just like top level creativity, top level writing ability, understanding of the game and what kind of gets them excited about D&D, let alone, you know, the kind of story we wanted to tell with this. So, uh, yeah, I mean, when you say top level in people in the industry, I completely agree with you. These people are incredible. And this is just a, a testament to their their ability. And for me, I I love nothing more than a collaboration where I feel like. I'm the least talented person in the room and everyone brings it so much more than I could have ever hoped for. And this is definitely an example of that. And to your point, 
While it is very much an Alexandria story, we wanted to make sure that people who were familiar with Critical Role would feel comfortable. We wanted to make sure that it also stood alone as its own story that could be kind of, you know, adjusted or placed elsewhere or not feel like you are missing anything or not able to enjoy it if you aren't familiar with our world. You know, it's it's just a fun story in its own right. I like that from, you know, how we, we talk about the Magic the Gathering books that we have done in the past or even Eberron, as you mentioned before. Like, people just like taking parts of those source books and having a, you know, populate their home world uh, and things like that. And I love that mm-hmm. uh, with Call of the Netherdeep, right, there, a lot of people haven't been able to, to delve in any underwater uh, situations in any printed book in 5th edition very much. I mean, there's all the pieces there, but now here we, here we get to tell a dramatic story that you know, might be underwater. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was kind of the, the inspiration for a, a lot of the Netherdeep and, and underwater aspects of this story was my, my fascination and and you know, love of the nightmarish Mariana Trench and all the creatures that exist in the deep places of the earth that even we fully don't understand and how life can flourish in spaces where life really should not flourish and how over time that evolution creates some truly frightening entities. That was very much something I wanted to to explore with this and the team just knocked it out of the park. <laughs> I love that. I, I mean, uh, you see on Twitter every once in a while, I think... Uh, I think it's actually Jennifer Kretschmer who retweets it all the time of these uh, strange aquatic creatures. Yeah. And then the visuals of them moving with these bright colors that you're like, why do they even have bright colors? They can't see down there. <laughs> but it's amazing. <laughs> Nothing uh, makes sense. <laughs> that's, part of the, that's part of what makes it so scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, there and is no. It's because of a god that has been, you know, trapped underwater in the Mariana Trench. I don't know if anybody knows that, but it's true. Yeah, now you should. So so everyone who's delving deep in the earth, be careful. <laughs> yeah, it's just I like, mean, read this book and you'll be yeah. totally prepared. So that is the call. There it is. Yeah, it's all crossing over. Yeah, and I just want to note because we don't talk about code names too often, but the code name for this book in in the D and D studio was Mariana. Uh, and I love mm-hmm. that you just name checked it. I was like, oh, yeah, uh, I thought that came from Matt. <laughs> I didn't. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I heard you mention the Mariana Trench, I was like, oh, duh. <laughs> like, that's why. Because a lot of times the code names really are not that on the nose. Um, mm-hmm. And I just was like, I don't know, spaghetti sauce? Like, what? <laughs> I don't know. Like, it, I didn't. I just never made that connection. So thank you for making that for me. Perfect. <laughs> my work here is done <laughs> uh, so one other really cool part about this book is the idea of there being a uh, rival party uh, and I oh, love that I love, love that it. idea uh, it's, it's, I've had a few dungeon masters in my past use that to great effect right it just creates almost like a ticking clock that uh, uh, you know can really enhance a session but if you're doing it over an entire campaign that makes it even, even cooler right so that's another part can you, can you talk about that at all yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, something that I find is a really interesting idea. When you're a heroes in an adventure, often you are the only heroes in an adventure. You are the, the story is centered around you, and that is fantastic and fun. Uh, but when you really break down the logic of it, if something is happening in the world that is grandiose, that is impactful, that uh, you know has consequences that are far-reaching there will probably likely be a number of people and a number of interested parties that would be patrons to adventurers. And so I love the idea of there being competition out there. There being, like you said, a ticking clock on the adventure to where the choices you make 
do have the consequences, not just beyond success or failure, but the fact that somebody else is seeking the same goals you are, and you may or may not like them based on how those interactions have gone in the past. And you get to build that relationship with this group. You get to see if you get there first or if they get there first and how those dynamics change from uh, chance encounter to chance encounter and have the opportunity through these interactions to really shape the dynamic of that relationship through the longevity of this story. And uh, that not only, I feel, really brings player investment to it because you have these recurring NPCs that aren't location-based. They are traveling in many ways the same path as your players, so, you know, they have investment in this and there's a likely chance that with each step, you may or may not run into them if they're following these same footsteps in a way. And they're making their own alliances, they're making their own choices, and you never quite know what, what changes may have befallen them with each time you interact. And I think uh, that, to me, also keeps players coming back to the table, gives the DM a lot of fun things to play with and a lot of interesting ways to, to flesh out these NPCs is kind of like their player characters in a way. You know, the DM gets to have their own adventuring party and gets to pit them against their players and not necessarily in an antagonistic way, but in a very interesting kind of complicating the story way. And uh, I, I'm, I'm excited to hear a bunch of stories from people who get a chance to play through it once it's out. I love that. Um, I can't help but he, like want to snap my fingers. Like what's right. story? Like when when I, we talk about the rival NPC party, um, is it? Mm -hmm. So you said you can something about deciding whether or not you like them. I already don't like them because I don't like competition. <laughs> However, is it possible that you could actually work with these people? I mean, it's it's D and D. Anything's possible, and based on mm. player choices, you know, uh, we we give tools and, and guidance in the book as to like how to to play their personalities and then ways to make it your own as well as how to or how certain events and certain encounters with the party might change their opinion of the party and so they could they could start as just silly rivals you know like two different sports teams that just want to beat the other for the sake of competition they could be cutthroat mercenaries that want to see the players dead they could be you know people that that have aligned you know, passions, but different ways of doing it and disagree on the means of doing so. Or they could just, you know, it, like there's so many different ways that their personalities could start and where they could develop based on how the players interact. If the players are going to be dicks, pardon, if the players are going to be mean people to, uh, <laughs> to, <laughs> to the rival group, um, you know, that's going to very much set the tone at the get-go. Yeah. But, you know, the rival group and how they come out of the gate too might set the tone. So it's up to the DM to really kind of decide where they want these relationships to start and then kind of once the runs the race has begun, see where they develop from there. And, you know, I, I, love, I love the idea of eventually people playing through the story and maybe romance some of the rival party, you know, why the heck not? What makes it more messy than falling in love with your rival and still fighting over a goal? You know, like I... Ah, there's so much fun opportunity there. So I'm I'm very excited to see people play with it. Yeah, you mentioned you. the sports movies, and I was like, oh yeah, like I I just recently watched through. It's not really a sports movie, but uh, Pitch Perfect movies with my, oh, yeah. with my family. And you're basically describing the plots of those movies, right? Like at least the first mm -hmm. two where they have the rivals in college, uh, acapella groups, and they, they fall in love, some of them, and some of them bounce off each other. And sometimes they become friends by the yeah. end. And you're totally right. Like there's endless possibilities there. Uh, and I think players love that idea of there being like the really you know, expert, good group that's really well financed, that has the best equipment out there, and but you're the scrappy underdogs, and so you're at a disadvantage, but you've got more heart than they do. And so <laughs> it, 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 there's yeah. just so many fun tropes that you can play with when you set it up uh, that there's 
multiple groups going after the same goal. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. That's yeah. the hope. And I, I can't, once again, like what makes me most excited about putting out an adventure module like this, just like with, with Explorers Guide to Wildmount is hearing people regale me with tales of how their stories played out and how they've taken this and made it their own. And I can't wait to hear some of the wild things that come out of these <laughs> called another team. I know. It's like you're the dungeon master for the whole world now. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I am more than happy to to take what what my very personal limited experiences with running games and try and impart some of that knowledge onto people that are looking for it. But there are so many ways to run a game, and uh, you know, some people find it more useful than others. But I am I'm just happy to share what I've learned and acknowledge that you know other people will take it and make it even better. <laughs> so can I? I want to because you're very humble, obviously. Um, and, but I'm going to try to unhumble you a little bit, just just for a minute, just just as like budding dungeon master to mm-hmm. expert dungeon master. But so people really love you like a lot, and you are very you know you're revered as you know a, a master storyteller, master dungeon master. Like everybody loves your style. Everybody everybody loves you. But what what is it like? If you had to bottle that up. <laughs> <laughs> what what's the ingredient what what is it why are you so good <laughs> can you answer uh, that yeah, this is, <laughs> i loving lovingly uh i'm really bad with compliments and stuff like this I know. Uh, but I'm, I'm trying my hardest um i like, don't know from a like a technical angle like think from, of it from like a, from, okay from a, fair a purely enough. technical dungeon master angle. from a technical angle uh i mean uh a lot of critical role success lends itself to everyone at the table. It's not just me. 100%. Um, it's it's just like any, and there are many game groups out there that play in private that are every bit as incredible, dynamic, if not more so, in their own right. Because every table is so different. But what because of our our craft and our experience as performers and our trust of each other, uh, it it creates a certain magical spark. I think that that draws a lot of people to to engage with it, and inspires them to to want to you know create their own uh, dynamic with their friends. And so I think that that is part of the impetus of it. I, I also just I'm extremely passionate about storytelling and the power that it can do to to inspire people, to make people better people, to uh, to bring people together for for good and 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 support and and just kind of be be a light in a sometimes very dark world as we've you know discussed it. Hmm. Um, so I guess if anything, I just I'm unabashedly myself uh, in, in all of its complicated glory. And I, I don't want to ever deceive anybody. I don't want to ever act like I'm just trying to sell something for the sake of selling. Like I, I genuinely want to just leave a good impact and hope to, to show other people that they can be as good, if not better. And so I, I, I think that's why. And, and also I just love stories. I've, I've been playing yeah. video games and reading books since I was a young kid. So I, I love the tropes. I love ways to twist the tropes. I like to create something that feels comfortable and uh, and welcoming, but also unique and and has its own twists. And uh, I think all those things together puts me in. And also being a lot of it being at the right place at the right time. Like I, I honestly can say, like you know, when when we started streaming, it was right at the the beginning of of you know live plays actually happening. And there are, you know there are other people that came before us, people that have come after that are equally in across the board when it comes to talent and skill. So a lot of it is just right place, right time. Um, so it, I, I answer in a, a scattered fashion because I'm still figuring it out myself. Yeah. 
And it is, is a, it is a pedestal that is both very humbling and very frightening. Yeah. And uh, I look forward to the day that I could disappear into the background and let the next generation <laughs> take the brunt of the attention that they so deserve because uh, it's a lot and it's good. That's a much better answer than I think if someone asked uh, Pete Davidson why he's so uh, attractive. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would just be like, I don't know, it's because. <laughs> and yep. uh, you put a lot more thought that into dude. that. Uh, and yes. and uh, I think that's, you, you, I think you get to the heart of it uh, uh, really well. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> As are we all <laughs> figure out all of this 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 thing called life. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but that's what makes. It, I mean, we 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 joke, but like that is part of what makes uh, all of 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 D and D really important right now is this ability to 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 take meaning from stories uh, when many you know many of the experiences we're having in real life don't feel like they have meaning and everything is is awful. Um, and so I've, I've, what's it been like going through this period, you know, starting up a production company and starting up all of these, you know, uh, amazing ventures, you know, having the animated series be, 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 uh, out there and for everyone to see, like, it's gotta be, uh, a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. No, you're, you hit it on the nose. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's tiring. Um, you know, I, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say the, the usual week is six days of work, anywhere from 10 to 14 hours, you know. So we're, we're pushing a lot of time, but it's also something we're really passionate about. And there's a lot of responsibility we take onto ourselves because it is creator owned, because it is it is something that grew, not because we were like, we're going to build this, but because it was growing whether or not we were ready. And we've just desperately been trying to keep up with that growth. And that involves learning how to create a business, learning how to run it, how to make sure our employees are taken care of, benefits are situated, the 401ks are situated, make sure that, you know, uh, ventures and opportunities are taken where it makes sense, where it fits within our lines with our values, where, you know, things are at a pace that we can still maintain uh, control without going crazy uh, <laughs> with, with the, the mounting responsibilities. So it's definitely been a learning process. Uh, and I think the reason that we're able to to do it is because we've been very careful to choose the people that join our, our little CR family uh, are extremely talented and just good people. Like the heart is as important as the skill set, And um, that's kind of our, our, our whole leadership focus as, as we've gone through this process. And I think with the animated series, it's no different. You know, we've, we partnered with Titmouse and everyone there has been absolutely wonderful. And everyone who's come into the design team, the animation studio, uh, the music, all the, uh, the board artists, the writers, like everyone who's involved in that stage, that production that I've met or spoken to has been genuinely an awesome person who is as excited as we are to see it through. And I think that sort of infectious energy, whether it comes from them, whether it comes from us, you know, the fact that that, that itself perpetuates the, the the hard work and never out of expectation, but out of a shared passion of wanting to to make something special is I think what really guides all of us and gets us through the long weeks, gets us through the long hours and the sleepless nights. Um, so I guess to, to, to take all that and encapsulate it to answer your question, it is a lot, but it's also very worth it. And, uh, you know, we, we only really have one opportunity to do this all right. And so we want to make sure we do so. And we'll see if we manage to pull it off. <laughs> That's inspiration, though. I mean, it really it does. Really I mean, is. I think a lot of leaders out there, uh, especially in creative endeavors, um, 
might have in earlier decades been like, you have to do the auteur thing where like it's your way or the highway and you kind of create situation. I mean, I'm sure in, in your decades of, of entertainment, you've seen directors and or producers mm-hmm. who are, who are uh, you know, that type of personality type. And it's so refreshing with something that, you know, whenever I do events or things like that, it was always been about lifting all those people up around you, including the folks that you, you know, respect. And so you don't have to, you know, you don't have to make, make it up. You know, you're not like being facetious or, 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 or doing a part. You're just being like, let's everybody, let's create this all together. Uh, and so kudos to you and the rest of the, the, the CR team. I know, you know, we've watched your relationships grow and change over the years. And it's just been so wonderful to see you at least keep that, that guiding light of, you know, story forest first people, uh, uh, you know, love this thing and, and we want to deserve it. Thank you. It, it, that's, that's the most important thing for us. I think, and uh, and I'm thankful that I'm thankful that that the people that we've come to work with trust us enough, and we trust them enough to just move forward, kind of arm in arm, and that that extends to the, the writing team on Call of the Nether Deep, uh, to just everything we're doing. It's 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 an equally important share of of everything. Anyway, I lost my train of thought because I'm just kind of overwhelmed with emotion. <laughs> this, is spot, the, so. <laughs> this is the, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, Barbara Walters interview where we get you to, uh, to cry for us. <laughs> oh, oh I, you don't have to try hard to make the me cry. T- I'm, ten, I'm super percent there most, most of the time. Inspiring dungeon masters. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, you, you mentioned the animated series and I, I'd, I'd love to learn more about that. That's, that's a part of, uh, production and stuff that I'm, you know, I don't know very much about, but I know uh, our audience would love to hear like, how, how did that come together? How did you create this story that was different from the one that you guys had in, uh, you know, when Vox Machina was being dramatized, you're going back to the more of the origins, correct? Uh, for the very beginning of it. Yeah. We, um, I mean, we set out, we just wanted to, to see if we could do it and we, we pitched it around. And, uh, as you can imagine, it was very hard to explain what we were and what we were trying to do to people who were unfamiliar and people were like, Oh wait, so it's, it's your, it's your RPG characters, but they're in a cartoon, but are you playing? Well, I don't know. Nah, we're going to pass. And so it was a lot of that. And we were, we were kind of at the cusp of going, well, as we gave it a shot and we decided, you know, I'll Crowdfunding has its many downsides. Uh, we wanted to see if there was an opportunity for the community to show support and see if we can create like a 22-minute pilot. And that would be enough to maybe show one to the, to the community this cool thing that we could all do together and maybe be an example of what we couldn't get through these people's minds. And it grew a lot bigger than we anticipated. And so... Um, <laughs> So it quickly became this, wow, this this will be a hard project to handle, but it will be exciting to do, too. This is a monumental project, and we need all the help we can get to see it through with the promises we've made. Um, but we've been very thankful that the whole team at Titmouse has been as excited. And like they brought top talent from across the, the board, and it seems like every person that came in, whether it be uh Arthur who is our like like main like artist uh, like designer for the series and and the character designer Phil Barassa like every person that came in uh you know, Sunjin who's like the animation supervisor all these people were just like titans of the industry already also were fans of critical role already mm. or quickly became fans when they heard about it and so it was this this weird kind of Avengers montage of them all coming together unexpectedly. And, and we realized at that moment that, okay, I think we can do this. I think we're in the right place. 
And uh, let me tell you, there's nothing more wild than having artists and animators that talented coming back in design approval meetings and showing you, you know, fully colored layout designs of cityscapes and, and, you know, realms that you just imagined in your home game with your friends and seeing them realized in beautiful art, far cooler than you ever even imagined. Um, that has been, it's been like a, like a twice a week Christmas since the production really began to go to these design meetings and see these, all this art come together and these sequences and, uh, as a guy who grew up loving animation and wanting to be an animator and like studying for that originally uh, it's, it's been absolutely surreal. So yeah, uh, hopefully we have the chance to do more. I know we have the, the one season coming up now. We have a second season that's in development. If it does well, who knows, maybe there's more to come, but uh, really, really proud of it. Everyone's really done an incredible job bringing it to life. It's definitely not for kids. Okay. watching this um <laughs> really that's another I, cool thing. I didn't know that yeah yeah it's definitely not for kids it is uh it was one of the other things that was hard about this trying to pitch it was like we're like we don't want to we don't want to give up any of the vision of the original story at least the the, the tone of it and we are a bunch of adults saying silly adult jokes and making quips and having you know real violence when the, when the moment calls for it having you know real sexual tension and sexual situations where it calls for it and just stories that themselves can be very dark as well as very funny in a way that is definitely an adult tone and trying to, to pitch an animated series like that with our background is, was a very, very challenging thing to get done, but we did it. And we kind of kept, kept all the things that we stuck to and condensing the, the story over a hundred hours, you know, hundreds of hours of gameplay into a uh, shorter form is definitely its own challenge. But mm -hmm. uh, that was something we got to do at the outset with all the writers and sit down for weeks and go on giant whiteboards and be like, all right, which story beats are the most important? How can we take the things that, you know, we want to keep in there and fold them, rearrange a little bit of the timeline? Which NPCs can we make cooler now that we have the opportunity to revisit these experiences? What, you know, villain perspectives that we don't get to see when it's a player-centric live play can we now experience in this narrative format? We got to really just break open the story that we return to and make it cooler. And so, uh, yeah. That's awesome. I That's do love like our it. dream for Greg mm -hmm. and I to like to be in a writer's room when things are happening. Whiteboards and post-it notes and craft <laughs> services. I want it all. Mostly the craft services. Mostly a giant bowl hungry. of M&Ms. Yeah, I respect that. <laughs> um, but I, I love that idea of adaptation, right? Like it's such a hard thing and people are always like, why didn't you just do it like the book? Or why didn't you just do it like, you know, exactly the way it was done uh, uh, in episode four of the, you know, your thing, right? And you can't, it's a different medium. You have to mm -hmm. make things. And also I love what you said about, you, we can make it better perhaps for this medium by yeah. altering some of those things. So not being beholden to, you know, the way you might have ran it in the, at a session, right? Yeah, I mean, it's we're we're playing an improvised story, which means sometimes really incredible things come out of that organically that would never happen in a written format. Also, there are things that maybe I could have done better, but you know, you're just seeing it through, and now we have the opportunity to do that to elevate it in those. Um, and you know, like with any adaptation, if there is something missing from it that you wish to see, you can always go back to the original stream and watch it. You know, it, it, the, the original format is still available and yeah. you can enjoy them both as unique ways to tell the story. So do you feel like it stays pretty true then to like the, like you, cause you mentioned like our a hundred, hundreds and hundreds of hours of gameplay. Do you like, if I watch the animated series and then go back and watch the, ep the 
session. episode session. Thank you. What is that word? The sessions that it was based on. Would it feel pretty true to its? It would feel the origin. It would feel pretty dang true. It would. Nice. There would be a lot more detail in our sessions. You know, there'd okay. be a lot of like character moments and interactions yeah. and NPCs they meet and maybe like smaller, you know, story threads that didn't make it into the series because they weren't as pertinent for the through line we were trying to tell. Um, but you will, but it is still at its core, the, the same story. It's the same emotional stakes. Um, it's, you know, with a, a couple of changes here and there to one, make it, uh, more interesting now that we had the opportunity to do so. And mm-hmm. a handful of surprises for people who even are familiar with our story to kind of keep them on their toes a little bit. But, um, oh, I love yeah. it. that's cool. Yeah. And so it sounds very similar to me, like the way Peter Jackson was able to adapt uh, Lord of the Rings, right? Where like, it's not a one-to-one, but mm-hmm. the feeling uh, at least in my opinion and many hopefully many others is that it like stayed true to like you know basically what the the themes and 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 feelings and character moments were for uh for those characters that Tolkien set up and it sounds like you guys are doing the exact same thing right you were just That's- trying to create that through line just in a different medium enhance some things and uh you know, skip over a few others uh, uh, yeah. of dirty jokes, hopefully. But <laughs> some dirty jokes. In there. No, no, definitely want to keep some of those. Well, trust me, there's plenty of dirty jokes. Uh, <laughs> and it, and it's, it starts a little heavy at the beginning, if only because we had to, we wanted to establish to people what to expect. Mm. Um, but, you know, when, when the story starts getting more serious out of the characters, though it doesn't mean that there's any, you know, absence of that silliness. Uh, but, but yeah, no, that, that was the intent at the get-go. And, you know, everyone's mileage may vary if they're familiar with the source material, but uh, we're, we're pretty dang proud of it. And uh, it was a challenge, but everyone involved, did, I think, did a phenomenal job on, on making it the best we could. Awesome. I can't wait. I, can't, I think people are going to uh, uh, really dig it. Um, and I love how it's been, you know, uh, uh, what you've done about reinventing the story, right? Not reinventing, but having these different campaigns. Mm-hmm. Really is a just a, a, a fascinating way to, you know, in, in my mind, it's, it's similar to the way, I guess now modern Star Wars is right, where you have different stories coming from different angles and telling different themes. Still, an overarching mm-hmm. feeling of of uh, of the world that you've established, but you get to focus on different characters and and let the performers that you know and trust so well do different fun things. So. How has it been with uh, with with campaign three here and 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 integrating some of the, some new ideas, some of which we might see in the uh, in another deep book? It's been really really cool. Uh, it's the kind of thing that I wanted to do since high school. You know, mm-hmm. I've always wanted to run like multiple campaigns in succession in the same world, but different aspects of it. You know, in the same way that we all hope to see cinematic universes do, and they're starting to now that you know those the generation of us that grew up having these daydreams are now creating the media out there. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's something I've always wanted to do. And so now having the opportunity to do so has, has been really, really enriching, really fun uh, to keep things unique and separate, but have enough connective tissue in, in the world where it feels familiar and being able to weave in little nods that players' choices and players' impact in previous stories do impact stories down the road. And the world does feel like it is kind of a living, breathing place. And Campaign 3 has been absolutely incredible. I've been able to work with amazing people both on the consulting level and on the world building level to help just really bring it to life and authentic in ways that I never could. Um, and the players are just un- untethered, unleashed. They have, <laughs> they have made some of the weirdest, most interesting odd out there characters. And it's made for a lot of delightful chaos and it's going to make for some wonderfully unexpected emotional moments as the story progresses. I'm, I'm sure 
uh, and I am just having a blast. It's it's like after after the first campaign, everyone was definitely kind of leaning into the more archetypical high fantasy stuff. Because a lot of, for a lot of them, it was the first time playing you know D and D ever. The second campaign, they got to get a little weird, a little darker, and kind of lean into the the the, the realism and the the moral gray and the political aspects of it. And the campaign three is just them being bonkers weird, <laughs> just rebounding at this point, and it's so much fun. We're having a we're having a great time. Yeah. Do you feel like now that they're you know the animated series is is a thing, a thing that could mm. continue? Does it? Does your world building, the way you build your worlds, does that change now? Like, do you have more of like a cinematic eye? things it would be smart to do that i, don't, I haven't changed how I, I haven't changed how i do anything i'm perpetually a, a headache to anybody who comes from a production standpoint who would have to adapt any of this stuff in the future because i'm not changing how i do things because you know at, at the core of it we're not writing these stories to become a cartoon right like, we're, we're we're playing this game because we love playing this game it's the core of everything we do it's the beating heart of critical role is is all of us as friends getting together every week and at that table everything else goes away and it's just us rolling dice and you know loving each other and teasing each other and and just seeing where it takes us and so if any of that were to change i think it would it it wouldn't be what how this started and what makes it special and so i haven't changed it beyond just making sure that I cross my T's and dot my I's when it comes to world building, because it's one thing to write your story for your friends at home. It's another to write your world and have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people picking apart your lore and looking for inconsistency. So uh, a little more uh, in, intense and in trying to, to keep things connected. Well, uh, but no, nah, I'm, I'm a nightmare <laughs> for anybody who wants to adapt. Sorry. <laughs> but what do you do? You, you've created hundreds of hours of, of source yeah. material for them to sort through. That's true. You know, these have things to pick and pull from. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it would be be a lot more cinematic if, if things were like a consistent, you know, cinematic beat where every single arc connected to the next dynamically and, you know, without any sort of, you know, fat or gristle on the side. But we're constantly doing spa bathhouse side trips and going on dates with the ogre cook at the, the local tavern, you know, stuff that is, that, that makes the game wonderful for us, but would definitely make somebody having to put it down be like, I don't know if we can conclude this, in which I go, no, we have to, because it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> Ogre dating is going to be the next animated series, is what you're saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even in the phrase cinematic, like that means like cinema which is not what you're doing right like and so i mean i i use that when describing action sometimes in in uh, around the table but it's not it's like cinema but it's not cinema because you can't make it like film because then it would be a completely different medium right and so yeah. I, I i love that you're sticking to your guns here and then just being like look this is a tabletop role-playing game i play with my friends mm-hmm. that will deal with the adaptation part later because you know if you try to make too many decisions about like, okay, well, we got to have a big bad and then the heroes need to have a time where they refuse the call and, you know, all that hero's journey stuff. If you were thinking about that, you know, over the course of a hundred sessions, I, I don't, it wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. And, you know, cinematic as a storytelling tool is extremely useful. And there are a lot of uh, RPGs that, that definitely build their uh, jamming style around that. And it can be really cool and a really easy way for people who aren't familiar with RPGs to get into it because it, it plays on those familiar cinematic tropes that make it, you know, really easy to create the scene in your mind's eye. 
but the way that I play my games is a little more like book narrative. It's a little more, you know, building through description. And I, I, I like to keep the cameras entirely, the cameras, if you will, entirely focused on the player's experience. And um, that's just my particular style. But like one of the wonderful things about D&D and other RPGs is every single GM has their own unique style. And all of these things can be mingled. They can, we learn from each other constantly and trade tips and like watching other people play and picking what you like and add it to your own repertoire. And so one table might be much more cinematic in the way that it's run than than ours and can be much easier for some people's imaginations to picture um you know it's there's so many different ways to do it but this is just the way that i've grown up doing it and i i can't imagine doing it any other way because it's just kind of ingrained in me at this point <laughs> so it's like riding a bike you can't you never forget it and and we wouldn't we wouldn't want you to change the way that you do things but okay. i was just i guess Part of it was now that now that you can't unknow what you know. Like you've been through mm. this three year process of creating mm-hmm. an animated series, and just like did any of it like maybe just seep into your brain? Like you can't help now but think like, oh, totally. that would be this might be cool. I mean, in, it, in that different medium, we can't help but think about it after the fact. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> you know, we'll finish a session, and after we like end up playing, we usually you know wrap filming late in the evening. We'll all kind of sit there in the parking lot afterward and be talking about, oh, be, you know, this would look really cool, you know, kind of daydreaming if, if, if it ever were to be animated or, or put in some sort of cinematic way. But, you know, uh, yeah, it's largely after the fact, I think. But that's how most games, even before the animated series went, for most people to play, you know, you have these awesome experiences at the table and then all your players kind of start discussing and remembering how things went down and in their heads and their recollections of it and retelling of it, it is very dynamic and cinematic and you can't help but kind of share that imaginative uh, you know, display collectively. So yeah, I, I, that, that's still very prevalent. <laughs> that's cool. I loved you describing the, uh, the parking lot you know, scene afterwards uh, and just reminding me that you guys have a studio now. You have your own place to make whatever you want to make. Uh, and that is, I mean, that seems like a boyhood dream for me uh, of having, you know, an actual physical location. It feels like a clubhouse. You get to hang out with your friends all day. Obviously, you're making stuff and it's not always easy, but mm-hmm. it does always feel like, oh, my God, you get you, this. This seems like a, a dream come true for for little Matt Mercer, right? <laughs> uh, very, very much so. Uh, it, it's very surreal. It's very surreal. And yeah, I'm. I'm very grateful that we have that opportunity to have a space like that. And I think Marish is very thankful that we have an opportunity to put all of my minis and uh, Dwarven Forge not at home because yeah. it was consuming most of our office uh, <laughs> until that happened. Mm-hmm. But um, he looks around yeah. his own office feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I feel you. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been really nice to, to have a space that we can kind of call our own and make it our own and, you know, our, our meeting room is designed to look like Gilmore's Glorious Goods from the outside. We got to give a little flourishes and touches to kind of just make it a little more our own. And uh, yeah, it's it's wild. It could all go away tomorrow. So I'm just appreciative for it now, you know. I love carving your own space out like that. I just think that's, uh, again, I don't know, something I loved about fantasy was like, oh, the Hobbit hole. And like, this is where the Hobbits live. And like, I feel like, you know, uh, when I was coming up in, in theater, like having like an actual physical theater that was your theater company's theater like just is such yes. a, a wonderful thing, right? You can be like, oh, we can make, and this is what we're going to make on this month. And this month we're going to do something different. On dark nights we do this. And I feel like you guys, uh, you know, have all that uh, ability to do cool stuff there. I mean, do, even, do people just come in and play uh, on the off days or anything like that? 
Uh, people, uh, we, everything we're doing, most of our playtime is, is on camera because mm. it's just our, our weekly game. But a number of our employees run their games as well at the studio. Now remotely because of, uh, you know, COVID and everything. Right. But um, but beforehand, and hopefully when we get back to it, a lot of our spaces there were, you know, where a lot of in, you know, intercompany games would happen every week. And we'd all get to yeah. share on Slack wild things that happen over that and just get excited for each other's stories and games. Um, yeah, I mean, it it's rare that a week goes by that we don't, some of us have a moment where we kind of look around ourselves in the studio and be like, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, we're still kind of processing it. Where's the monkey's paw? <laughs> Where's the- no joke. No, the monkey's paw thing comes up often. I'm like, wait for the other shoe to drop, man. Cause this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's curling slowly in some uh, drawer in Hollywood somewhere. Yeah. That would, that, that would explain my lower back in the past year. Definitely. There's the other part of the monkey's paw. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's going to be great, but you'll have debilitating back pain. <laughs> oh, great. Hey, you know, <laughs> oh my God, sounds awful. Uh, it's but, not fun, but you know, aging. <laughs> Isn't it great to be old? Yeah. <laughs> Shell, you don't know anything about that. You're 27. Yeah, forever. It's a pact I made. <laughs> a warlock don't regret pact. It. It's a warlock pact. It, please introduce us to your patron. We'd be willing to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I regret nothing. That's why oh you're God. leaving your fingernails everywhere from your... Uh, from my hex blood. Yeah. Yes. Now I just had like this vision of creating a warlock that's like involved, like the leader of an MLM scam. And now I'm just going to like, <laughs> <laughs> why have I not done this before? Buy my leggings. Honestly, Would you like to yeah. buy some leggings? <laughs> pretty great, actually. It's really good. Oh. Oh man, this this puts a lot of LLM leaders in a different light for me. Maybe they right. do have a patron. <laughs> Maybe right. they're just all warlocks. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, man. I, I'm thinking of Scientology and all the the fun cults that we've. I, that that was my obsession over uh, COVID quarantine was watching a lot of cult shows, uh, which was yes. not healthy oh, yeah. but entertaining. Right. You know, there's a awful lot of unhealthy watching over the pandemic. It's like pushing a bruise. Yeah. You can't help but be like, you know what? After a long hard day, let's go ahead and watch more murder shows on YouTube, or you know. What what serial killer documentary can we fall asleep to at night? What's wrong with us? You know, it's it's and an odd therapy. It's true. And then listening to all like the true crime podcasts and mm-hmm. yeah. Although only only murders in the building. Did you that was actually very good. And that one that series. Cool. Yes. Um, we get what was there was one that me and Rochelle, I think we we just moved in our first night in our, our new place and we just had a little cot out with like an inflatable cushion and we just put a little speaker on and we sat back and we had i think the only power was on we just had like lanterns oh wow that sounds wonderful it was great and we put on the i think it was called root of evil or something it's a podcast about the black dahlia murder that is fascinating and super dark and we're just listening to it like up until about like two in the morning and we both like one the fact that we're doing this as a couple means that this was meant to be two what is wrong with us <laughs> Let's christen our new house with uh, with like terror. <laughs> yeah, I knew, I knew I found the right one. <laughs> I think like these, but these could potentially also be good inspiration for character building or for world building. You can get some good tips. 
Oh yeah, I mean, killers? if you if you if you want to run <laughs> if you want to run a horror based game or really like kind of lean into those horror you know story beats, there's there's fewer better spaces to pick inspiration from than real life than real yes. people. <laughs> oh man, yeah, create uh, some NPCs from some of these. Yeah, like, remember when we were all like, into Tiger King in the <laughs> be in the beginning of this pandemic? Seventeen years ago. <laughs> yeah, <right>. Oh man, <laughs> I know. Oh, I, I love. I love that we're watching Tiger King. I love that we're doing a Tiger King side thing here. We're watching it. We're like, okay, this this guy's like not great, but that one, the one guy with the long white hair who had like his own like weird little cult. Oh yeah, uh, you know, yeah. on the side yeah. that they just kind of interviewed a few times. He's like, no, 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 that that guy seems worse, right? Why aren't why aren't we going more on him? And then they put out a documentary not too long ago about him, and you're like, oh, this guy's so much worse. <laughs> I mean, they're all bad, but like, yep, it's real bad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. See? Human nature. We just love looking at that that car wreck. Uh, you know, and even in our storytelling, as you're saying, like there's something about the the darkness that or people who are I mean, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say the three of us are not actually evil people. Uh we're actually probably farther on the good spectrum. Uh well maybe not that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like I I, I I think there's something to that uh obsession with the worst behaviors out there that is actually oddly healthy. I agree. No, it's, I'm sure there's actually been studies in this sort of behavior, but from my just personal uh, instinct or opinion on it, I guess, is that part of it is a way to be grateful and thankful that you're not this person. Mm. Two, to hope to learn from certain signs, red flags and elements from these to possibly avoid individuals like this in the future there's an element of like what survival skills and you know social experiences from this can i adopt and avoid myself getting killed by a serial killer in the future um and it is a unique you know study on just the dark parts of humanity that we just have a a morbid fascination with yeah yeah and i think about that when i'm you know i have kids and you know we're at that point they're eight and ten now so we're at that point where like can they watch stuff that's darker or can they not? And mm. we go back and forth. Sometimes we're like, sure. Uh, and sometimes I'm like, nee, 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 I don't know. Um, but part of me, the reason why I say sure is because of exactly what you're talking about. Like if you if you spend your entire life and many people who had uh, different upbringings, you know, if you, everything is just rom-coms and, you know, happy-go-lucky cartoons all the time, when you're faced with an actual monster in real life, you don't have any skills. You don't have any experience. You don't even know that you're being manipulated by uh, mm-hmm. these monsters. And so you're right. Like having those those warning signs in our fiction, you know, maybe that's almost like an evolutionary thing of the, why we tell stories as much as we do. Yeah. That, I think it's a very valid point, actually. I'm very thankful that I grew up with things like, you know, Secret of Nim, mm. uh, you know, you know, animated stuff, who Fear Much Rabbit, where things that you're like, oh, this is this is – Obviously, a family cartoon show, but it has and isn't afraid to to go into darker themes to to really kind of like some of the good Disney stuff too. Really, in the villains, yeah. you can see there are facets of you know manipulation and and selfishness that in itself is a lesson in how to best identify people that exemplify some of these really negative and, and in some cases dangerous traits. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, part of, part of the reason of fiction is not just escapism, but it's also like most storytelling to impart knowledge, you know, from one generation to the next or from one person's experience to another. 
and you know through even role playing games through the creation of dynamic and interesting you know bad guys or or just antagonistic personas can be an experience not just studying them but also learning how to interact with and ultimately avoid becoming you know victims of this sort of really negative behavior um but you know occasionally also yeah. it's a lot of fun kicking down doors and killing monsters and getting loot yeah <laughs> but that is true like we you know we we've talked about D teaching life skills um mm-hmm. whether you're recognizing it happening or not but it is um you know a, a way to possibly see some of of these these villains that make you a trope of of a villain that you may encounter in your real life and how to deal with it but it's also provides a way to i'm not suggesting like we're all serial killers innately but <laughs> you you can be a little bit bad in D&D in a safe confined setting but also see the consequences of your actions in that and i i think like at least for for kids especially you can see what happens when you make fun of the the troll under the bridge like maybe you mm-hmm. actually really did hurt his feelings and maybe this is a way for these kids to learn a little bit of empathy on that so yeah so i completely agree i think i think one of the coolest things i i heard uh, was from uh who who was it i think it was it was patrick rothfuss actually mm who was running D&D for his kid, for his young boy, but he provided no weapons and just instead provided a, a few magical items like a rope of climbing and you know a bunch of, of utility items that didn't have combat-centric enchantments. His kid was very young at the time. And it engaged the narrative storytelling as a problem-solving mechanic as opposed to a you know resolve every conflict with fighting and bloodshed. And in doing so, kind of still was able to convey at a, at a very young age a lot of these same lessons and skills and and problem solving and group dynamics and, and, and things without necessarily jumping to violence is the answer. And I thought that yeah. was a really, really cool way of 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 utilizing the role playing structure to impart some of these skills to his child and do so uh, in a very uh, fulfilling and, and for lack of a better term, healthy way. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That is actually very creative. And we've seen that through, you know, whenever educators use Dungeons and Dragons at their, uh, uh, in the classroom or in, just in after school uh, situations, like all of these things improve, right? Empathy improves, basic learning yeah. skills improves, arithmetic improves. And it's just like, I want more people to play Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so you grow up to be better people. You get to be better people. And we'll just have a lot less podcasts about serial killers and true crime because well, those are important people, too. They just won't be doing it. We'll just we're there's just going to be good people in the world. <laughs> I I look forward to that day. I truly do. I'm 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 very thankful. I I look back at who I was before I learned about you know tabletop games and you know I don't consider I wasn't a bad person. I was just a very shy person. And I think through role playing games, I learned to be more bold, to stand up for other people, to stand up for myself. Um, you know, there there are many social skills that I learned through these games that have become so important and so intrinsic to who I am. And I can't fathom who I would be if I had never crossed paths with a D20. Like, it's it's very odd. I'm very thankful. And not everybody needs that experience necessarily mm-hmm. to, to become, you know, a better person. But I think it is a wonderful opportunity to explore yourself, 
to explore the kind of characters that you want to be more like, to explore the characters that you definitely do not want to be like. You know, uh, sometimes I, 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 I'm challenged to, to recommend a, an evil campaign because it takes a certain type of, of maturity, you know, and, and, and an understanding and respect to really kind of play that without it becoming just a murder hobo violence fest, especially when you're younger and a teenager. I've, I've been invited to those games before and it wasn't enjoyable, but I think from the outset to play a morally complex character who leans more on the evil side can be a really fascinating way to step in those shoes and embrace the discomfort of making choices you never would and walk away going, I'm thankful I'm not this person. Mm. Does that, yeah. that make any sense? Totally yes. does. Yeah. And uh, I just, I just, when you were talking about your youth, I remember you posted a video of yourself, I think, getting a oh, D&D book uh, when Aww. you were, what, like, 17? Uh, I must have been 16, I think, at the time. 15 or 16, yeah. It, well, thank you for doing that. I know not not everybody would be uh, as, as uh, you know, open about themselves as a teenager, but that was just really nice just seeing, like, oh, that was a little miniature Matt, uh, you know, talking through his excitement about this game, and and uh, it was just, I don't know, it was just really, really cool to see. I think a lot, a lot of folks who who did see it were like, oh yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of myself in 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 the stuff that you do. Yeah, I hope so. That was kind of the reason I put it up there. My my brother, thankfully, he as part of kind of the the holiday gift to my parents, he digitized a bunch of the old VHS tapes that we've had in a box in the oh, garage for years, awesome. and we just haven't gotten to. And so he took like the last two months of last year to just slowly go through and digitized them uh, and gave us thumb drives for Christmas. And oh, he, he found that one video. He's like, you're not going to believe what I found. When he showed me the clip, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is, uh, I have to share this because one, uh, you get to see that I've, I've always been that awkward and nerdy. Um, <laughs> two, you get to see that I have, will wear pajama pants every day of my life since I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> and, and three, you know, hopefully see that that spark of of joy that even way back then it was granting me when this you know shy art kid would rather spend his days staying indoors in final fantasy uh will continue to do that but also now play D and do some theater stuff because he has the door open for him so if you haven't had a chance to see it anybody who's watching this you can i think it's on my instagram uh you can find it easier there. I think it's at Matthew Mercer VO and you can find the clip in there easily. And it's uh, delightfully embarrassing and I love it. And, and endearing <laughs> for sure. I'm curious because you said you were a shy kid. So what was it about D&D that was appealing to you? Because I, I, I could see like a, as a shy person that maybe the idea of role playing as a, or, you know, in front of people can be mm-hmm. daunting. And certainly the role of a dungeon master could also be really scary. Yeah. But yeah. You, there was something you found that you loved about it. What originally got me actually was a monster manual. It was mm-hmm. before the game. Uh, I've always loved like monsters and demons and beasts. I, I grew up in, in, an artist and drew monsters and, and just, you know, wild things from my imagination into my sketchbooks repeatedly. You know, I grew up reading comic books and just loved, like Venom was my favorite, you know, Spider-Man villain growing up because there was an interesting social dynamic, but also I just loved his design, uh, especially like the early McFarlane era where he wasn't quite so slobbery teeth, just more just creepy. Um, but I, I my, my mom found a monster manual at a garage sale and this was like, oh, this is something Matt would love because I collected 
paranormal, you know, the time life paranormal uh, <laughs> books, like with the black borders. Oh, I had I books those. on old mythology. Yeah. I had books on cryptids before they were known as cryptids, just like the Tome of Monsters. And they were all just like, I was fascinated with old lore and mythology and beasts of legend. And so when she gave me this book, I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I just read it cover to cover, took a bunch of inspiration from the artwork at the time. And that was kind of my introduction to the idea of D&D. And that's when I found out that my grandma played it for a short time. D&D? On my dad's side. Yeah. My, oh. grandma, my grandma, who was a huge fantasy nut, she read Lord of the Rings to me when I was very young. She owned all like the Pierce Anthony books. Uh, she owned a bunch of different, like she was, she was a fantasy nut. Uh, grandma living up in the Smoky Mountains of Georgia, who was just <laughs> really excited to show me some of these fantasy books. And so it's amazing. Uh, I didn't know this till years till, till I got the book, but they were like, Your grandma played DD for a little bit with like your aunt and uncle. They weren't into it, but she was super into it. I'm like, I adore her. She's no longer with us, but I think of her often as things get crazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the, it, that book just enthralled me. And so with that monster manual, I began to seek out the other books and then I began to learn about the game and the dynamics of it. And so I was kind of doing a lot of studying on my own without anyone to play with. And then I had the opportunity freshman year of high school when the popular arts club, which was the code for the nerdy anime video game club that I had joined uh, the leaders of that invited me to their D and D game because I was doing art for their club and like design their logo and stuff. And they're like, Hey, young kid, they're all seniors, you know, and juniors are like, okay, hey, you want to come play in our D and D game? Oh. Okay. And so I came in and I, I made a, a wizard using the, it was the militant wizard, uh, which is the worst wizard out there. Cause you're like, cool, it's a wizard, but, but you can use a sword. So you're in the front line. Why would you do that? Especially in second edition D and D it was, I don't know any better. Uh, and while the, while the style of the narrative wasn't for me, it was definitely silly and, and, it was less story invested and more like just us rolling and my murder hoboing and just kind of being, being a silly group of high schoolers. Uh, I saw the, what the game could be. And when I eventually decided that while this campaign wasn't for me, I wanted to run a game. And so that's when I left that and read the dungeon master's guide that I got in that video. <laughs> you can see me getting my, my oh, uh, wow. okay, so DMG, that, which I, that's cool. That's the video, which, which I call it the DGM in that one because I transposed the letters. I've been reading a lot of EGM, the Electronic Gamers Monthly magazine at the time, and I think my brain just transitioned that. Uh, I noticed but, that. Uh, but yeah, that was that was kind of where it started. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that, that that you brought it back to the video of like this where we were in that in that. Uh, See, he's uh, a history. master storyteller. He yeah. knows. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it all back. You can't help but do it. <laughs> I, I blame it on the blame it on the 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 large volume of caffeine that is co- coursing through my stream. <laughs> mm, <laughs> sounds wonderful. At all times, the <laughs> IV is is needs to be changed. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of which, we do need to get your your IV changed. So, thank you so much for <laughs> uh, change my catheter. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Those fourteen hour days they're going to end uh, eventually, hopefully for you. Uh, as uh, we're all excited for uh, all of the things that are firing off here. Obviously, we talked about Call of the Nether Deep. We talked about the Legends of Vox Machina. We didn't get to talk too much about the Taldorai Reborn book, which is also out there, which is very exciting. Oh. Please check it out if you can. The team on that did an incredible job. Uh, we were so proud with how that turned out. So if you, check that out too if you get a chance. <laughs> I, I love how there's so much more in there uh, than the previous publishing of it, right? Like there's just so much more uh, material there. So folks definitely see what the uh, the team has done to expand upon that world and hopefully bring some some stories to life. 
Thank you. Definitely. Honestly, Shelly, Greg, you're both amazing. It's great to see your faces again. And thank you for having me back to, to chat nerd stuff for a while. I love it. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Always good to chat with you. And so excited for everything that, that is happening to you guys. So well-deserved. Thank you. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the show. We will. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait Yay. What an amazing human being Matt Mercer is. I get a kick out of talking to him about all the fun stuff that's going on in the world of Critical Role. And so many good things. And you know what? Nobody more deserving. I love him. That's he true. I love is. how you uh, you almost made him blush, I think, for a while there. he was. I he was, thought he was going to just turn off the camera and just go. He was going <laughs> to melt. He was going to melt. It was, it, was, it was adorable. Yeah. What yeah. a good guy. Doing great stuff. Uh, so, so glad you got to listen to all of that. Um, and I'm excited that we closing out this episode so you can follow uh, everything that's going on with Dungeons and Dragons by going to DungeonsandDragons.com signing up for a newsletter follow us on the social medias uh, but more importantly than all of that you can follow us personally yes. Shelly where, where, where can they find you at Shelly Moo on Twitter and Instagram I am at Greg Tito on Twitter underscore Tito on the Instagram and now it is time for the ongoing adventures of Drunky Two-Shoes and Daryl Two-Shoes. You have just uh, poured a healing potion onto your fellow Harper's uh, face, Samson's. You're licking it off. Daryl is frustrated with you because he's in the middle of a battle with two doppelgangers uh, as well as a third that has been fighting with you. Uh, you are in the basement of a grocer and Daryl is starting to get a little bit claustrophobic. He's like, we should get out of here. I, uh, what are we supposed to do with these guys? Lady, a, a ladron. It's the woman who hired us. Laryl Silverhand. Laryl. Laryl Silverhands. She's, what, what, what are we supposed to do? We got to bring these guys back. Do you want to get them in chains? I, they're going to kill us before that happens. Do you have chains? You are in chains right now. Well, get these off me. Uh, and then you see just a kind of a frustrated Daryl. He like swings with his like short sword and tries to break uh, your manacles. Oh, I feel like that hurts. I feel like that just pulled my little arms right out of my sockets. Uh, oh, okay. Rolled high damage there. So you, he was able to do, uh, uh, I guess, probably uh, eight points of damage to the chain. He actually oh. and, he, and he slices the chain in half. Uh, and so now you've got two manacles, kind of bracelets on either side of your, on, on your arms. Dang, bro. So yeah, you are now free. Thanks, uh, and he says, come on, up the ladder. And he. Well, what, what about these guys? Trap them down here. Okay. So he, he scrambles up, uh, up right. the ladder. Then uh, guard the door up there at least. He will, in fact, guard the door. Um, but he is also going to take two uh, attacks of opportunity and one of which crits him. Oh, my God. What? Uh, he only takes three points of damage, though, from a crit, which is amazing. Yeah. I rolled two ones. Um, and <gasps> the other one, I think, is also a hit, but he takes six from that. So he's getting stabbed, and he's like, ow, ow, ow. And uh, he's like, come on, come back up here. Just get up there. Uh, can I jump in here? Yes. What do you do? So, so I have, like, these heavy things on my wrist now, the manticles. Yeah. The, okay. Man- manacles, yes. Man- manticles? <laughs> Manticores and manacles put together are manticles, yes. <laughs> manacles? Maniacal manacles? Yes. Can I just take them? Can I just backhand doppelganger? 
poof. Yes. And then. And you're trying to like kind of push him too, or you're trying to get him away from you? Uh, trying to get away from my brother and also knock him out. All right. Go ahead and roll. Bam. We'll say that's an improvised weapon. What do I roll? Uh, just roll an attack and give me your, you know, what you get. Any attack? Yeah. 14. 14's a hit. Oh! All right, so you uh, uh, backhand him and try to get him off of what's happening here. Um, and how much damage do you do? Uh, you roll, just roll a d6. Oh, you want me to roll it for you? Yeah. Okay. Oh, there's my die. Okay. You got three. Um, oh. So it was enough to kind of get them off of scrambling up the ladder. Um, and, wh- and then what are you going to do with it? So that was your attack. Are you going to do anything else on your turn? Um, I'm going to go to the back door and I'm going to start shoving boxes in front of it and try to, to trap them in here. You, so you are going to go up the ladder? But isn't there a door that we came in from you guys when came we were in the parking the lot? You guys came oh, we did? The There's only one basement. door? Yeah. Oh, okay. No. Then I am going to pounce on the, the, the guy that I hit. Can I just pounce on him like a cat? Okay, and you want to try and hold him down? Yeah. Okay. I think that might be another attack, though. Oh. So you have a move that you can do or a bonus action. That couldn't be just my my move? No, because you you hit him, you did some damage, and so now you want to figure out what you want to do to grapple him or, or hold him down. Or you can just, or you can just be like, "Hey, I'm just going to stay here and attack." Yeah, I'm just going to stand there, block okay. the bottom of the stairs. That's it. All right. Well, then Samson is able to attack. He misses again, um, and uh, the two doppelgangers swing at him again and do some damage to him. Uh, Great. So he takes uh, eight more points of damage. Oh, Jesus! So Samson is also, uh, you know, defending as best he can, and Daryl is now up the ladder, up on the top, and we'll pick it up there. We'll see what happens next. I feel like these guys are going to be mad at me. The doppelgangers? No. Daryl and Samson. Oh, why? What are you going to do? I mean, they, they were probably like, we could have been out of here like 10 minutes ago. You're, you don't you're, think they're you're, mad? You're, you're, you're in the midst of battle. We're only doing like one round, if that, each time. So, you know, take some time. Okay. All right. We'll see, we'll see what Sensitive. happens. Sensitive. <laughs>